You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Ever wonder what terrible thing happened on this day in true crime history? My name is Karina B. Mesterfer, writer and host of Morning Cup of Murder, your daily true crime podcast that dives into what murder took place on today's date in history. With over 500 episodes about serial killers, murderers, cults, and cold cases, there is always something new for you to enjoy. Morning Cup of Murder is the perfect addition to your morning routine. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, start your day with a morning cup of murder. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else you listen, and come say hi on social media at Morning Cup of Murder. Oh, and remember, stay safe. Hi, I'm Annie from the U.S. And I'm Johanna from Austria. Welcome to Fresh Hell, your favorite international podcast. You just heard a promo for Morning Cup of Murder with Corinna Bemisdorfer. The episodes of that podcast are roughly 10 minutes long, and so they are truly perfect for that early morning dose of true crime. That sounds good. I'm definitely going to check it out. Also, like always, we want to thank our newest Patreon members, Courtney Garrison and Belinda Chain. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. And I think we are working on a game night soon, aren't we, for some of our patrons. So we'll be telling you more about that later. Yes, exactly. So if you want to know more about our Patreon and how to join and what we do over there, just listen until the end. That's right. Because now, as always, we are gonna dive directly into today's story, and it's a story that Annie is gonna tell us. What is it about Annie? All right. So my initial plan today was I wanted to cover Tony Costa. He came up briefly in our Lady of the Dunes episode, and that's when mm-hmm. I first learned about him, which was really a surprise to me because he's from, you know, these were Cape Cod murders, so it's local. And I spent days and days and days reading up on him, and it's bad. It's really bad. It's the worst we've ever we would ever have done, I think. In terms of the details of the crimes being just deeply disturbing. That on its own wouldn't actually necessarily prevent me from discussing the case, but the problem was I just couldn't find anything from the victim's families after they were identified. They were very vocal while these women were missing, but after they were found, there's sort of silence. So it's a case I suddenly felt like, hang on, I'm going to take a step back from this because... You know how we feel about that. If anyone knows of a source Mm. where the victim's family members are publicly speaking out about the case, please let me know. Because otherwise, it still feels too soon and these people just don't need anybody reminding them of what happened, you know? Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually an interesting discussion. We just talked about it in the Facebook group. It's always important to us that we have at least the feeling that the victims and their families are okay with us talking about their lives. That's, for example, why I will never, ever cover the Fritzl case Mm. because the family never publicly spoke about the horrible things. And for example, right now I'm working on an episode where we actually do have the explicit blessing of the victim's mother to talk about her child's death. So that's it's very Yeah, that's really an honor in that case. Some families really do want their stories told and others don't. And we always try to respect that. And so I said to Johanna, and, you know, of course, when I say I said I mean text. I said, you know, I think that the Costa case sort of makes the brutality of the Ketty murders seem easier to cope with. And do you know what Johanna said? Well, first she said she understood why I didn't, you know, want to do the Costa case. And then she said she doesn't know the Ketty cabin case. Well, I'm familiar with the name, but I don't think I know a whole lot about it, actually. All right. Well, I'm still not sure how much I know about it. This thing went deep, and I'm going to do my best to tell you about everything I've learned. The biggest issue I had for this case right off the bat was this entire case, it's like a chimney fire fueled by rumor and speculation. And I thought, that's all right. I'm going to be able to read everything I can find, and surely I'm going to be able to separate fact from rumor because I have done that in other cases. But there is an astonishing preponderance of rumor and speculation in this case. And a lot of it is considered sort of 
evidence and cited as source material in newspaper articles and things. So it's tough. And then a lot of it is also very, very unkind to the victims. And that made me mad. So here we are. Uh, most of the information people who tell this story have, it comes from a website and a YouTube movie called Cabin 28. That is a, I don't even know what to call it, a film and website by a guy named D-Mac. He has taken up the cause. He's like a citizen sleuth who's deeply, deeply invested in this case. He's done interviews with the survivors. And so if I say something uh, like, you know, someone said this or said that, it's something that I saw them actually say on these hours of interviews that he's uploaded to YouTube or another media. Other major sources are the admittedly few contemporary articles of the time, pretty much everything I could read about it on Reddit. And then there's another website called The Great Zodiac Hoax 1986. Now I need to figure out what The Great Zodiac Hoax of 1986 is because I don't know, but they have a Ketty section, which was actually helpful. And then there were a series of articles in Plumas News who often quote the Ketty 28 website as a source. And People Magazine Investigates did a program on it, season one, episode five. I will also want to let our listeners know we're going to be discussing alleged domestic abuse and child sex abuse, but I'm not going to be getting into any super specific details there, I don't think. This is a really tough case dealing with the murder of a adult and children, and it's difficult researching it to work out what's rumor and theory versus fact. So I apologize for anything I've gotten wrong because I'm sure there's something. I think this is the hardest case I've ever tried to put together and present. I also want to be clear that uh, for almost everyone in this story, there's someone describing them as an absolute saint and someone else describing the same person as just the worst human being to ever have existed on the planet. I'm going to err on the side of being kind I'd rather say nice things about someone who turned out to be a real asshole than say unkind things about someone innocent. So that's that's where I'm going with this one. All right, here we go. Glenna Susan Davis, who everyone called Sue, was born in Springfield, Massachusetts on March 29th, 1945. So she is a couple of years younger than my parents and in the same city. She had one brother and one sister, as far as I know. She may have other siblings, but I know she definitely had those two. And she got married to Jim Sharp when she was fairly young, uh, just shy of her 20th birthday. They married on the West Coast in California in February of 1965. She and her husband would have five children. Their son, John Stephen, was born on November 16th, 1965. Next was their daughter, Sheila, about a year later. On July 26th, 2nd, 1968, their daughter Tina Lynn was born, followed a few years later by Richard, and then five years after that, her youngest Greg was born. And I believe the family traveled around the country quite a bit as he was in the Navy, and it does seem like he was unfortunately abusive to her. And over the years, she would try to leave him, but in one of the interviews, Sue's sister said that he would, you know, woo her back again and she'd end up going back to him. Finally, it seems around 1980 that she had had enough. In one of the interviews, Sheila, the eldest daughter, says that her father was not only physically abusive, but also sexually abusive to her and her younger sister, Tina. I'm not sure if this was Sue's breaking point, but it would have been around this time that she packed up her kids and left for good this time. She drove out to the area near Quincy, California, I think from Connecticut across country, to stay at first with her brother. He had a small one-bedroom trailer that they could use, but there were six of them. And while it was a really generous attempt to help, it just... It wasn't going to work for them in the long term. Sue eventually found a place for her and her children to make a fresh start in Keddie, California. Keddie is about an hour and a half northwest of Reno, Nevada, and it's two and a half to three hours north and a bit east from Sacramento. And I think it's about an hour east of the Bay Area. It's in a national forest. It's really not even a town. You know, I'll probably refer to it as a town, but I think it's like unincorporated land. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it did have a restaurant and a bar that was called Keddie's Back Door and a small grocery store. Would you call that a dive bar? It is 100% 
a dive bar. Yes. We were just talking about this in the Facebook group because you were at, you thought dive bars were for divers, right? For scuba divers? No, no. Well, the thing is, I've known now for a couple of years what a dive bar is, but when I didn't know and I heard dive bar for the first time, I actually thought it's a bar at the beach that somehow is adjacent to a diving school. And after you take your diving classes, you go there and relax with a nice cocktail or a beer or something like that. So here's the interesting thing. And I don't know if I told you this in that Facebook chat or not, but you can go to dive bars that are also dive bars, like in areas where scuba diving is popular. Like if you're in like the Keys or the Bahamas, there are definitely dive bars full <laughs> of divers. Okay, sorry for interrupting you. So there's the, the Caddy's Backdoor dive bar. Okay. Caddy's Backdoor, total dive bar, I think, and a small grocery store. And that was about it. But back in the day, it had been a sort of swanky tourist destination. So there was an article for the San Francisco Gate from 2001 by Kevin Fagan, and he writes this about the resort, which was also a stop on a railway at one point, so really easy to get to. Quote, 20 years ago, Caddy Resort was in the latest of many heydays dating from its founding in 1910, a placid getaway where you could rent one of 33 rustic cabins or a room in the handcrafted two-story lodge. The streams had great trout fishing and pine-studded trails beckoned all around. The Caddy Lodge restaurant was packed most every night with customers who came from as far as San Francisco to dine on barbecued bear ribs. That's right, bear, sherry-basted raccoon steaks, all shot locally, and fine wines, end quote. Mmm, who's hungry? Uh, okay, I'm not a picky eater, and I usually try everything, but I'm not sure if I would try raccoon and bear, to be honest. Even though I usually like game, but I imagine bear is very gamey. I, like, stronger in taste than a wild, like a boar can't remember the last time I got that close to a bear. Yeah, probably. And raccoon, mm, they're so cute. No, they're too much like human beings. I'm not. Yeah. No, I'm, no thank you. All right, so back to Sue Sharp and her children. So they moved to Keddie, which over the years, due to a bunch of different reasons, had become less and less popular. And so at this time, it had become affordable housing. She was probably thrilled to be moving into Cabin 28. It's a small cabin, but it's theirs. I'm going to post a layout and some photos, but the cabin's front door opens into a living room. A small eat-in kitchen is through the living room to the back. And then there's one bathroom that is located between two bedrooms in a hall that runs along sort of the right side of the house. At the back of the property is a walkout basement space, and there are stairs outside that lead up to a landing, like a little tiny landing porch outside the kitchen. That's where the house's back door is located. They turned part of that basement space into a third bedroom, and 15-year-old Johnny claimed it as his by birthright because he was the oldest, and that's how it works. Johnny was a really good-looking kid, you know, full head of, like, oh, they're so, it's like 1981. It's like that shaggy, everybody's got that sort of, like, careless, shaggy, I don't know. You know the style? It's just, yeah, yeah. yeah just I don't like know. Uh, out of bed, but in a good way. Yes, in a good way. People could really pull that look off. Yes, and yeah, these, I know what you mean. the Sharp family in particular, really, really nice heads of hair on this family. <laughs> Yeah, so Johnny, he's a good-looking kid. He's got uh, just this shaggy, dirty blonde hair, twinkle in his eye. His sister, she basically says, you know, he could be a little bit of a smartass, but he's a 15-year-old kid, so, I mean... I'm going to go ahead and say I think that's probably normal. Yeah. There wasn't a bathroom in the basement room or anything like that. And so they left the cabin's back door uh, unlocked in case Johnny needed to use the bathroom or get a drink or a snacky snack in the middle of the night. But they never locked the doors and no one else in the area ever did either. Inside, one of the two small bedrooms in the house had bunk beds and a cot in it. And this was the room that Ricky, age 10, and Greg, age 5, slept in. The other bedroom was shared by Sue's eldest daughter, Sheila, who was 14 and had her mother dark-haired good looks, and Tina was 12, and she had the blue eyes, those really light, bright blue eyes, and just this, like, shampoo commercial of 
gorgeous, shining, dark blonde hair. And then finally, Sue herself. She is slender and petite with just amazing bone structure, dark hair. I think she's really beautiful. She was 36 and, and very petite. They're all, they're all pretty petite. So the family settles in quickly. The area actually reminds me a lot of the little neighborhood where our tiny summer cottage is, like in a great way when you're a kid, you know what I mean? Like the houses are pretty close together, plenty of kids to play with, no one locks their doors, Mm. there's like woods and a creek and a pond, all kinds of places to play, kids to play with. You're just in and out of each other's houses, having sleepovers, riding in the beds of pickup trucks and in the way back of station wagons. No one has a seatbelt on. Everyone's riding their bike with no helmets. That sounds like the never-ending summer camp dream. Yeah, yeah. And just, you know, drinking out of the hose, living on the edge. So the kids make friends quickly. Johnny is 15, as we said. And his best friend is a boy from the neighboring town of Quincy, where the kids all went to school. This is 17-year-old Dana Wingate. And Dana is described by his dad as being a preemie. One of his older sisters talks about how I think he was the fourth of three sisters and then a boy. And so she was talking about how he was just the most beautiful child. And they used to dress him all up like a doll and call him Peaches. And it's sweet. You know, it's like these memories you have of your siblings. And I don't know what the details are, but it seems like he did get into some trouble. And eventually he ends up in, it's referred to both a group home and a foster home. I think it was a foster home, but with a lot of kids in it. But with a family. Do you know what I mean? With a man and his wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where he was living at the time of the murders. And I'm not sure what's transpired there. And I've read things ranging from, you know, this kid is a sociopath to this is a kid making a couple of bad life choices. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter. The way his biological father spoke of him, it sounds like he may have been like a little bit younger than his years. The father of the foster home said that he was a good boy. Other things you read are more like, you know, I don't know. I think he was all right. So Dana has shaggy, flippy hair, kind eyes, and just sort of a mischievous child. 15-year-old me would have maybe fancied either of these boys. You know, they're cute, they're funny, they're nice. Maybe just the right amount of bad boy, but like safe teenage bad boy, not really bad. You know what I mean? Like maybe they steal a cigarette or a beer every once in a while, you know. The other kids' closest friends seem to be living in the cabins, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But while the kids make friends pretty quickly, Sue is quiet and mostly keeps to herself. I'm going to guess that's probably because she's absolutely exhausted. Yeah. I mean, I see my sister, who is a single mom of one, uh, who's going to be a teenager soon enough, and she's exhausted. It's exhausting. And I can only imagine how exhausting it must be to raise five kids by yourself. It, I mean, it's pretty much guaranteed exhaustion right there, right? Absolutely. I think another aspect, too, because a lot of people, I think, in the neighborhood thought that she was sort of like aloof and not that friendly. But I think a lot of it also came from her history, probably, of moving from military base to military base, mm. especially being a woman who was being abused. You know, if you had bruises yeah. to hide, there are a lot of reasons that you can develop that sort of... If you're just not naturally introverted, you know. But then there's also more as well, because I read somewhere, something I read had said that the cabins were rented for between $150 to $300 a month, and it just depended on the size and location. So she's receiving $250 a month from the Navy, and that's going to go to to helping to support her kids. Um, I think that was part of the divorce, but I'm not even 100% sure that they were ever formally divorced. But anyway, she's got this 250 bucks a month from the Navy, which is exactly what their cabin costs, 250 So that money's gone immediately. Sue then had a part-time job at the Elks Lodge in Quincy, which was the nearest town, and she was taking business classes at the community college and received a small stipend through an educational grant for that. The family were also on food stamps to make ends meet. And if, like me, you watch all of these things, I was a little bit miffed to see, you'll see a lot of of different things being said. And one of the things that's said is, you know, she didn't really fit in around here, and the family depended on social welfare, they were on food stamps, and that's not really something to be proud of in these parts. Like... 
Yeah, no shit. Do you think anybody wants to be on food stamps? Like, is I'm sorry, is poverty not bad mm. enough without yeah. people who are people don't realize how often they're like they are one layoff, divorce, death, bad medical diagnosis, or like just an accident away from poverty themselves. Do you know what I mean? So why are you poor shaming people? There's nothing to be ashamed of if you're getting food assistance. There is something to be ashamed of if you let your family go hungry when there's assistance that you could get. But getting assistance when you need it is nothing to be ashamed of. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yes. Uh, the, uh, look, I'm, I'm from a country where there is a... a pretty tight social social welfare system. Yeah. Yeah. Are there always some people who take advantage of this system? Yes. Of are course. they the majority? No. Yeah. If you abuse the system and take something that you don't really need, then you can be ashamed. If you take help that you need, there's nothing to be ashamed of. We all need help. Exactly. Right? Everybody is going to need help at some point in their lives. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It just bothered me because there's just a lot of like snide comments by neighbors in this YouTube mm. documentary and they just make me angry because they don't help anything. They're just kind of mean, you know, and it's, yeah. I don't know. All right. So let's talk about a few of the people who are also living in the Ketty Resort cabins and in the general area when these terrible events of April 1981 took place. So, one of their geographically closest neighbors were the Seabolts, and they had six kids, I think. The kid uh, that we're talking about is a daughter who is about Sheila's age, and her name is Alyssa. So, Tina and Sheila would often stay overnight there, and I think their cottage is super-duper close to the Sharps' cottage. The houses aren't, like, laid out, you know what I mean, in, like, perfect little... They're kind of placed... I'm not sure why they were placed the way they were, but they're not straight. Do you know what I mean? So like you've got the you've got the Sharps cottage and then like it seems like the back end of the Sharps cottage and the back end of the Seabolt's cottage are only maybe 15 or 20 feet, like maybe five meters from each other, whereas the fronts are further apart. You know what I mean? They're kind of set like that. Mm hmm. Also living in the Keddie cabins was 12-year-old Justin E. He also lives close to the Sharps in cabin 26, and he is really good friends with 10-year-old Rick. Now, he had also not lived in that area for very long. I think he'd moved in around the same time that the Sharp family had. He left his dad's and moved in with his mother, Marilyn, and his stepfather, Martin Smart, who goes by Marty. Marilyn and Marty, they have... What seems to be a very troubled relationship. I could be wrong, but it seems like Martin may have left his first wife. I'm not sure if it was even his first wife. I think he was married before and had children with this woman. And then he left his wife and children to be with Marilyn, who I think Marilyn was already divorced from Justin's father, but I'm not sure if Marty was the reason that she divorced him as well. But I'm not sure... Why? Because Marty was not so much of a catch. He does look like if you have a migraine and your vision isn't stellar when he's younger, you could kind of, if you look super fast, he looks like a young Jack Nicholson. <laughs> That's all I've got to say about Marty. So That's, uh, you know that I find Jack Nicholson is one of the most scary, scary, scary I do men. too. I do too, but I know other women who think he is like irresistibly sexy and he scares me. So I don't get it. He's so scary. Yeah, see? You'll see. Tell me. I think that's still from The Witches of Eastwick. Do you know I only watched that recently? Like Paul made me watch it. I'd never seen it. Marty's problematic. So it seems like at one point he had tried to kill his brother and like, there was some instance where he tried to build a bomb to blow up his parents' house and kill them, I think. Okay, but the, pe the people on food stamps are the problematic ones in the Yes, that's correct. You are okay. absolutely... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. He was also... To be fair, I don't think that Marty and um, Marilyn ever... I didn't hear them say anything bad about the food stamps. They weren't the people being mean. But... Yeah, he was also alleged to have been very abusive to both Marilyn and her two boys. There's a younger brother of Justin's. I'm not going to drag him into this except to say this is a two-parter. He might come up briefly in the next episode, but it seems like there was an instance where one night Marty took things just a bit too fucking far and he tried to run Marilyn and the boys over with his car or threatened to. <laughs> I know. It's one of these incredibly toxic 
relationships where he's hmm. so in love with her, you know, in the very yeah. unhealthy, abusive. It's very disturbing. And so I think the way he sort of gets out of a lot of his behavior is he says how sorry he is and that he has PTSD from serving in Vietnam and he's going to go to the VA hospital in Reno because they have doctors to help with this now. And so he goes. And I don't know if she like made him go or he volunteered to go, but he goes and he spends some much needed, it sounds like, time in the psych ward of the local VA hospital. And this is where he makes a new best friend. Another vet with PTSD who goes by the name of Bo. Bo's real name was Severin John Bobaday. Mm -hmm. I can see why he would take up a nickname. Right? <laughs> That's like Erasmus Tripling. <laughs> I always forget. Erasmus Tripling Trout Shoe. <laughs> yes. why, why can I remember that, but not what I ate yesterday? Like, what's going on with my brain now? All right. So, yeah, I think Bo had a lot of nicknames and also aliases. He had a violent criminal past of definitely bank robbery. Other things maybe, but like definitely armed robbery. And he'd been in and out of prison and was allegedly heavily involved in organized crime activity back in Chicago. That was another kind of wormhole I fell into where I think his uncle was like a bigwig and got him into it. But then I was like, step away. That's not the important thing here. He ends up in this Reno, Nevada psychiatric unit where he meets Marty. And once they're leaving the hospital, Marty learns that Bo doesn't have any plans to go anywhere. So he's like, you know what? Why don't you come back and live with my wife and stepkids? Extremely violent man with a long criminal past that I just met in the psychiatric ward. And, and Bo's like, great. So he goes back to Ketty to sleep on their couch. Mm, Marilyn must have been so thrilled. I mean... Yeah, I can't imagine. We're going to circle back to PTSD again, but I really want to remind people who aren't familiar with the illness that the condition of PTSD doesn't generally make a person violent. I guess there is a higher probability of violence if the person is also abusing drugs or alcohol. Uh, it's been a little bit since I've read recent literature, but the important thing to remember here is that PTSD doesn't make you like a shitty, violent, manipulative, abusive person. You can be that person before you get PTSD, right? And then it's just not going to help. Do you know what I mean? I don't want anyone to think, I mean, I have PTSD, so I don't want anybody thinking that like, you know, I'm... No, that's not you uh, like shitting on people with PTSD. No. Not at all. I, I get no. what you mean, yeah. You shouldn't use it as an excuse to be violent towards yeah. other people. That's what that's right. Yeah. That, mm -hmm. Yeah. And also, you know, most people aren't, you know, they aren't violent. Yeah. And... This is going to come back in the second part. All right. So now it's time to talk about the crime, unfortunately, because it's terrible. On Saturday, April 11th, 1981, so almost four, 40 years ago, the kids were off playing with their friends most of that morning and afternoon. Sue dropped her oldest son, Johnny, off uh, in Quincy, seven miles away. Seven miles would be like five kilometers? Uh, seven, isn't six point something miles 10 kilometers or something like that? It could be. It's not that far. Seven miles is not far. Yeah, I think it's roughly like 10 kilometers. Yeah, sorry, I didn't look that up. So he's going to spend time with his friend Dana. And it was agreed that Dana would then come back to Johnny's later that night and spend the night. And Dana's foster father, he was in an interview and he said they told the boys it was fine for Dana to spend the night, but they had to have a ride from someone. They did not want the boys to hitchhike. The boys agreed and then they went off in search of a party. Back in Ketty, both 12-year-old Tina and 14-year-old Sheila, I think they were both uh, next door watching TV at their friend Alyssa's house. It was pretty common for the sisters to both spend the night, but on this particular night, the older girls wanted, like, their own night just for the older girls, which, having a sister two years younger than I am, I... 100% get that. Yeah. Like, I, li I liked having my sister with me, but then there's some times where you just, you want, you know, time without siblings. Yeah. And so uh, Tina headed home. Also home that night was Sue, who was home most nights, and her younger sons, Ricky, who was age 10, Ricky's friend, Justin, he's the son of Marilyn and stepson of Marty Smart, and then the youngest, Greg, who's five. Greg would have gone to bed pretty early, and then I think actually uh, Tina 
might, I can't remember if Tina was up for TV at the end or not, but they watched uh, an episode of The Love Boat. And this is IMDb's description of that episode, which was a brand new one that night. So it says, quote, Captain Steubing's friend is a gambler who becomes a bad influence on Vicky, a man who lost a lot of weight and his fiance come aboard, and old time members of a gang reunite to rob the ship's vault. Okay, confession over here. I loved the love boat. I had kind of a preteen crush on Gopher. Did you? Of. Yeah. I also loved the love boat and had a preteen crush on Gopher. <laughs> <laughs> Now I feel a little bit better. I thought it's so weird, but okay. <laughs> no. I liked him and I liked Isaac. Yeah, Isaac was also, I mean, Isaac was cool. I would have hung out with Isaac, but... Yes, too old. Yeah. I had a yeah. very, very romanticized fantasies about Gopher. That's like. absolutely normal. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm assuming the episode of The Love Boat, I mean, you're so explicit. Does it have something to do with what's going to happen? No, right? Well, we'll see. You tell me what you think. It comes into play later, maybe? So they watch The Love Boat. And then after the love boat, everybody heads to bed. So now it's the morning of Sunday, April 12th, and 14-year-old Sheila is heading home from next door. It's early. It's like 7.30, 7.45 in the morning, and on a Sunday morning. But the Seabolts are going to church, and Sheila is going to get changed into something nicer so that she can go with her friend, Alyssa. Now... Again, I feel like I keep diverging because of like threads I've seen that are super common in these chat boards. And a lot of people seem to think that's weird or suspicious. But my best friend when I was a kid and I, well, she's still my best friend. But when we were children, we used to go to religious services all the time with each other. And I'm Catholic, I was Catholic and she's Jewish. So I didn't even understand her church services or her uh, mm -hmm. temple services. I just wanted to spend more time with my friend, you know? I don't think just... that's weird at all. I don't yeah. think that's weird. Yeah. So she's going home. She's going to get some fresh clothes that are more church appropriate. So she opens the door and is just absolutely shocked and devastated by what she sees. She's not really even sure what she's looking at. Remember, she is 14 years old, and there is so much blood and the bodies, and she sees what looks like an open switchblade, and then she recognizes one of the bodies is her brother Johnny on the floor, covered in blood. Sheila drops everything, turns around, and runs as fast as she can back to the Seabold's house, yelling for help. The Seabolts didn't have a phone, so they ran to another cabin for help to call the police. Meanwhile, Sheila is completely distraught and doesn't know where her mother or the rest of her family are. So she and Alyssa's brother go back to her house. And I think he went inside and like kind of tiptoed around a little bit to make sure that the coast was clear. And then Sheila's just overwhelmed with relief when through the side window, she can see her brothers Greg and Ricky and their friend Justin are still asleep in their beds. So they open the window and they manage to get the boys out the window so that they don't have to see the horror mm. of what's happened in the living room. That's really smart thinking on Sheila's mm. part. It's really good, yeah. Yeah. Sheila's uncle is called. He's the one who identifies the bodies. And... I guess it took a while because there was so much damage, so that's awful. The police arrive around 8 a.m., and when they open the door to the cabin, they see these three bodies. Closest to the door, as you walked in, was the body of 15-year-old Johnny. Next to him, what Tina thought was a switchblade was actually a steak knife that was taken from their house, but the knife part, the metal part of it, had been bent because of the force with which something was stabbed or someone. So next to him, laying face down with his head just barely on that seat from the sofa, is Dana. And behind him lay Sue's body on her side. And her feet are sort of close to Dana's arm. And she's covered with a blanket from Tina's bed. Thankfully, this is why Sheila did not see her mother. There's a diagram I'll post that shows, like, the layout of the house and also the chalk, like, the... 
it's just a layout with where the bodies were in position. You know what I mean? And then I do have mm-hmm. photos that I am going to be uploading to the Facebook album. There are photographs out there that do show the bodies in place. I'm probably not going to post those. I'll probably post the ones that show there is quite a bit of blood staining and chalk outlines, but the victims have all been removed. Yeah. There's other pictures you can find if you want to do a search. The following information is also directly from the Ketty 28 website. And it says, quote, Johnny's hands rested on his abdomen, taped tightly at the wrists with several loops of white cloth medical tape. His ankles were wrapped twice and tightly knotted with a white extension cord. The cord stretched neatly parallel to the base of the disturbed TV stand, then turned abruptly 90 degrees, leading to Dana's ankles, where it was loosely looped once and knotted. Around one of Dana's hiking boots was the loop of medical tape, and there was also half a loop of tape on his right boot, but the tape appeared to have been broken. Likewise, the tape around his wrists was broken, with broken bands of tape connected only to his right wrist. The tape around the stronger Dana was also much wider than the tape binding the younger, smaller Johnny. Sue's ligatures were by far the most complicated. Her wrists and ankles were bound with the narrow med tape relatively loosely. Over the tape on her wrists was a tight loop of electrical cord knotted several times. Over that was another loop of stronger electrical cord knotted and connected to a third length of cord which extended to and tightly looped around her ankles. So she was sort of like hogtied but with everything in front instead of behind. So this is continuing on. Yet another length of wire superfluously tied her ankles together. The cord between her ankles and wrists was so taut that her legs and knees were drawn together. She was also gagged with a bandana and her panties with several lengths of medical tape applied on top of them. End quote. Just a question. With several lengths of medical tape applied on top of them, like wrapped around her head, like gagged with um, the bandana and the panties and then wrapping the tape around her head. I believe so, yes. Mm -hmm. That's the one thing that I was trying to figure out. The way I understood it was, I've also read it that it was her panties and a ball of tape. And I read that it was a bandana and her definitely her panties. Okay. But they they were far enough back is my understanding that her mouth was closed. Like, okay. Oof. you know, the other thing to know about the medical tape is when they did, and we're, we're about to get into the autopsy findings, but I'm not sure if I've made this note that when they removed the tape, they learned that they had definitely been taped first because there was no blood, like, you know, like the whole hand would be covered in blood and they'd remove the tape yeah. and there'd be no blood. So they knew that they'd been taped first. All three of them had been beaten with hammers and stabbed to death, and I'm going to now tell you the conclusions from the autopsy reports. This I got from the Zodiac hoax site. I'm trying to give equal credit to these sites, and I'm going to link to the full reports in our sources. There are a lot of injuries These people have a lot of still living relatives, siblings, and nieces and nephews and parents. And so if you are one of them, you might want to skip ahead a few minutes, please, just because this is tough. So 15-year-old Johnny, he was the first body seen when entering, and his diagnosis at autopsy were, quote, 1. Stab wound, right carotid artery and vein, and larynx. 2. Multiple depressed skull fractures with lacerations and contusions of brain and brain swelling. 3. Stab wounds of chest with involvement of soft tissues. 4. Fracture of right orbital bone. 5. Ligatures of wrists and ankles. Cause of death, stab wound of right carotid artery, vein, and larynx. Dana had also been manually strangled, and his diagnoses at autopsy were, quote, 1. Multiple skull fractures with facial bone fractures and lacerations and contusions of brain with brain swelling. 2. Hemorrhages, deep soft tissues of neck with facial petechiae and facial swelling, strangulation. 3. Meningeal hemorrhage, brain. 4. Multiple fractured teeth and loosened teeth. 5. Aspiration of blood, modest. 6. Ligatures of wrists and ankles. Cause of death, craniocerebral trauma and strangulation. 
Sue had also been hit in the head with the butt of an air rifle, a daisy air rifle. Parts of it were found at the scene where it had broken. She also had a number of defensive wounds. Her final diagnoses, according to autopsy, are, quote, 1. Multiple stab wounds of anterior chest with involvement of ascending aorta, pericardial sac, and left lung. 2. Hemothorax, considerable. 3. Stab wounds of larynx with aspiration of blood. So she's still breathing. 4. Multiple lacerations of scalp and face with skull fractures, right orbital fracture. 5. Meningeal hemorrhage, brain with focal contusion of brain. 6. Focal fractures of upper anterior teeth with loosening of teeth. 7. Ligatures of wrists and ankles. 8. Multiple cuts dorsum of left hand. Cause of death, multiple injuries with stab wound of aorta and hemothorax. End quote. Now, according to Healthline.com, hemothorax is when blood collects between your chest wall and your lungs. It's an area where blood can pool, known as the pleural cavity, and the buildup of the volume of blood in this space can cause your lungs to collapse as the blood pushes on the outside of the lung. And this is most common after serious chest injury or certain surgeries, uh, especially like open heart or lung surgery. Now, with Sue, there's no, there's no evidence of sexual assault, but the fact that Sue was found naked with her shorts next to her on the ground and her panties shoved down her throat, I think there had to have been at least some sort of sexual motivation for at least one of the killers. I think, and I think most people do think that it was, there were at least two killers there, but I think it, there was a sexual element, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? Sexual attacks don't always have to include rape or how do i how do i see that yeah there's not always physical evidence of something sexual like somebody could there's all kinds of things people do there's not always also penetration yeah because exactly uh, the gratification of the crime comes from the feeling of having power over the victim or degrading the victim you know what i mean does it make sense it's not like having intercourse and that's that's the reason for the sexual violence, you know? Absolutely. Well, that's what most rape is really about power, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. It's, really it's about sexual. Power. Yeah. It's violence and power. Yeah. Why do you think that it was two attackers, though? I think it would be very difficult to somewhat quietly subdue, torture, and kill three people by yourself without sustaining injuries. And they had inquiries at hospitals to see if anybody came in with any kind of you know, <laughs> like a black eye, it's just anything, and there's just nothing. They also found one hammer and one bent knife at the scene, but I believe that they determined that a second hammer and knife that were not found at the scene had also been used mm -hmm. in the assault, so... We're gonna talk more, I guess, about that in the next episode. Yeah, but definitely. I just, just my two cents here right now. Yeah. I think it's possible because she was with two young boys, so if somebody comes in alone but with a gun or a rifle threatening everybody and for example tells the two boys to tie each other up yeah tie the yeah. others up and then you know it's it's possible it's it just absolutely two boys. It's is possible yes it abs but we're gonna we'll get more into it you tell me yeah. what you think yeah there's more but we'll see and it's yeah it's hard to know Sue was still wearing, so she was naked from the waist down, but she was still wearing her bra and shirt. There was also blood on her bare feet and also on the sneakers of one of the boys, which indicates that people were walking through blood at some point. So whose blood was on Sue's feet? Her own blood? One of her children's? We don't know. And it sounds like at some point, Dana almost got free of that tape, right? Because... In the medical reports, it said how the tape was pretty much broken. So then yeah. you wonder, is that why they got the electrical? I think it was just a long extension cord. So is that why they then got the extension cord out? It's just, I don't know. It's odd. It doesn't seem like well-prepared, you know? And as far as the tape goes, it seems like they used a ton of medical tape, like a lot of medical tape. And Sheila was like, no, we don't, we don't have that in our house. Like, we didn't have medical tape in our house growing up. We had band-aids, you know, plasters. Yeah. I'm sure there was like a, maybe one roll in an old first aid kit somewhere. Yeah. But, it's the yeah. same here. You always have one roll in your first aid kit somewhere around the house, but nobody ever uses it because... Yeah. What do you need most? Band-aids, exactly. Especially with kids. Exactly. Yeah. It was like yeah. bacitracin, you know, mercurochrome, band-aid, good to go. The other issue was the crime scene 
It wasn't really that well preserved initially. There were a lot of people in and out. There were at least five yeah. people in and out before the crime scene photographs were taken. Some fingerprints were taken, but I don't know if we know who those are. I'm pretty sure everything seems to indicate that the, the killer or killers wore gloves, but it's still an open case. One of the weirdest and I think most disturbing pieces of evidence, maybe, is that there were apparently just hundreds and hundreds of stab marks in the walls. Like someone had walked around with a knife, just stab, 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 stab into the walls. That's disturbing. Right. I'm hoping one of the kids was throwing a knife. You know what I mean? But I feel like if that were the case, uh, one of the other kids would have said so. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh, Johnny was throwing and always throwing his knife and mom was yelling at him. Or, you know, someone would have said yeah. that somebody was – do you know what I mean? So then do you have – the killer or one of the killers walking around stabbing walls. Hundreds of times. I mean, that's... Yeah, hundreds. They were there all night. We don't know. We don't know how long it went on for, but they believe that, that it stayed, they were there for a while, torturing these people. The blood evidence made it clear that the violence had been contained to the living room, apart from a small smudge of blood on Tina's sheets and a small amount on the uh, back stairway. I think there was also a bloody footprint outside. And speaking of Tina, in all the confusion, it took a little bit longer than it should have to realize that 12-year-old Tina is gone. In one of the interviews, Justin says that he was telling the police that she was gone immediately, but they just weren't listening to him. But finally they do, and then they're like, oh shit, you know, and then they call in, I believe, the FBI, because they think it's a kidnapping case, and they start to look into the kid's father, thinking maybe he found them. He had actually been out to visit them once when she was living in that trailer by her brother, but when they moved to Ketty, Sue was adamant that he not be able to find them, and I think that's actually why she wasn't getting any child support from him. I think it was just more important that she keep her kids safe than to have the financial support she was owed. You know what I mean? Which I understand. It, it enrages me but I on her behalf, but I understand it. Now, you may remember that Sheila had said that her father had sexually abused both of them, both her and Tina, from an early age. And she said that Tina was his favorite. Tina is the hardest for me to talk about and for Sheila to talk about. I think the whole family were on the petite side, but they describe 12-year-old Tina as being more... She was sort of like a nine-year-old. And I think she may have also been developmentally more like a nine-year-old. She took special education classes, and her teachers absolutely loved her. But I just worry that as a result of that, she maybe was a little naive or a little bit trusting. You know, not quite as wise as her years maybe should have let her be. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. But just such a sweet, funny kid who had plenty of friends and fit in just fine. She was having a good time. The other thing that broke my heart is in an interview with the police, 14-year-old Sheila. This is, there are on the, on the Ketty 28 videos on YouTube, one of them are just all these police interviews. And so one of them is just the recording of then 14-year-old Sheila being interviewed by the police. And I just wanted to cry because it's like, she says to the police officers, you know, it's possible that she'll run and hide if she was scared. And she says, you know, if you find her, it might take a little while before she'll tell you anything. So don't, like, it's almost like she's telling the police to, like, go easy on her when they find her. You know what I mean? Because she's very shy. And so now there's just giant manhunt for Tina. And they're not finding her in any of the little forts in the woods where they hope she would have maybe been hiding. And as we said, they're looking at their father. And he was in the Navy. And it's so... NCIS put him under surveillance, hoping that he would eventually lead them to her, but there was no luck. Eventually, he's questioned. He has a rock-solid alibi, and it was determined to be a dead end. Jim Sharp was not responsible, and he didn't even know where his family was. So, thinking Tina's abduction was the key to figuring out who's responsible for the murders, they start interviewing everyone who knows the kids or the family. One of the female teachers said how she was just her favorite student, she was the sweetest, most beautiful, loving child. So then they talk to the next teacher, and this is a male teacher, and initially they don't suspect him in any way. They just want to talk to everybody who had spent time with Tina to see if she mentioned anything to them or anyone, just trying to find any kind of lead, right? But they are immediately creeped out by this guy. He Apparently, he had a really 
disturbing obsession with Tina. They say in the People Magazine documentary that he had a photograph of her on his desk. What? Yeah, and it gets worse. He also has a framed photograph of her in his house. What? I know. Please tell me there's a good reason for that, because there's right now it sounds hell of suspicious. It's very, it's very, very, very bad. And he was also reported by witnesses to have been in Ketty that night at the bar. The police officer in the 20, Cabin 28 documentary, he says that later on this teacher moved, left the area, I think because so many people thought he was a child molester. And then at the next place he was working, he was arrested for molesting a girl. But it wasn't him. He had an alibi, and now they're stuck because the FBI is in it, the Department of Justice is in it, and they've just got nothing. Okay, and there are still the three boys. I mean, they've been sleeping in the next room, basically, and I assume they've been questioned, so... Yeah. Hear anything, see anything suspicious? Let's first talk about five-year-old Greg and ten-year-old Ricky. A lot of people are suspicious and don't believe that the boys say that they slept through everything and they never woke up, but I think it's totally possible that they could have. I think the first reason for this is that they were from a really large family. Well, my family was small, so a family of six seems big to me, but that's a pretty big family, right? And they... Yeah. Yeah. They often lived in very tight spaces, so like base housing, not huge, right? <laughs> and then once she left her abusive husband, their father, you know, they all lived in a one-bedroom camper for a while. So I think they adapted very quickly to sleeping through the sounds of people being around them, right? TVs, radios being on, yeah. sharing bedrooms, sharing beds with siblings. I think that's all normal. I, and I also think that that age range is just prime sleep through everything years. You know, those at that age, you just, oh God, I miss sleeping like that. The other thing I think that's important to think about is I have no personal experience with this, so apologies if I'm making inferences, but I would imagine that if you grow up in a home where there is physical, verbal, and sexual violence happening on the regular, you would learn very quickly at a young age to tune out as much as possible as just a defensive coping mechanism. I think it's absolutely possible that they slept through everything. Don't you think? It's absolutely possible. Look, I'm a light sleeper. Yeah, me too. Everything wakes me up. And then there are days, especially when Philip is home, like when I have the feeling I'm I'm safe and secure and somebody's mm -hmm. there, there to care. Nothing wakes me. Like nothing. Yep. Philip is amazed how deep my sleep is. Yeah. It's and I'm not a 10-year-old boy. And 10-year-old boys on a Saturday in April... Out yeah. all day, living in a camping ground or a former, like... Riding their bikes all day spot. long. Yeah, yep. please. Yeah, right. Absolutely exactly. possible. Yeah. Now, things get a lot more complicated with Justin. Justin says... I think first he says he thinks he saw the murders. Then he says, oh, well, I dreamed. I had a funny dream about the murders. Now, again, watching this Cabin 28 doc, you're all going to have to watch this Cabin 28 documentary on YouTube so that we can discuss. But they're talking to this officer, and I'm not using any of these police officers' names because it's not important, and I don't want to besmirch anybody. But this guy is literally saying, yeah, you know, hypnosis was like a new tool in law enforcement, and I'd been to two seminars on it, and I was like, what the heck? I'm going to try to hypnotize him. This is one of those rare moments in podcasting where I just wish you could see my face. So Yeah, but I also get it. I get yeah, it. It's the age just that desperate. you hear about hypnotizing witnesses. So hey, let's give it a try. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah. So they hypnotize Justin and his story changes over and over again. The problem with hypnosis, though, right, is the possibility that you're super open to suggestions. It's also possible he did see things and was traumatized by it. He essentially said that he heard some noise, peeked out the door, saw Sue talking to two men. One had a mustache and short hair. The other one was clean-shaven and had longer hair, and both had those big-ass late 70s, early 80s glasses on. And his description of the men that he gave under hypnosis would be used for the police composite drawings. He said that he saw Sue talking to these two men and that Johnny and Dana had come home and a fight had broken out and then Tina had come into the room with her blanket around her from the bed and that one of the men took her and went out the back door with her. And 
Part of what he says seems to be part of the plot of the previous night's episode of The Love Boat. The other thing Mm -hmm. to keep in mind is that if he saw this happen, he didn't see it while he was peeking out the bedroom door because the sight lines would be all wrong. You can't see into the living room from their bedroom door. He also said that Sue was stabbed in the chest, which she was, and he says that he tried to stop the bleeding, which there was no evidence of that. Like, he had no blood on him anywhere. So there's a possibility that maybe he did see things. Maybe he's afraid of, you know what I mean? It's just, it's kind of a confusing jumble. But now they have to interview Justin's mother, Marilyn, and his stepfather, Marty, and Marty's good friend, Bo. So Marilyn says in one of the interviews that Bo was really interested in Sue, but the feeling was not mutual. I can't imagine why. She said that Marty and Bo had asked her to get Sue to go out drinking with them that night at Keddie's back door. But Marilyn's like, you know she doesn't drink. She's not going to want to go. But they kind of insists she asked her to go anyway. So she's like, so I went and I asked her, but sure enough, she said no. I told them she doesn't go out and drink. She's not like that. So Sue said no. So that was the interview with Marilyn. Next, they bring in Marty and Bo, and they bring them in together, and they're interviewed together. Marty, it seems, was a really good friend of the local sheriff, and that interview goes something like this. Bo immediately lies about who he is. He tells them that he's a retired cop. He tells them that he was shot while he was a cop because he was responding to an armed robbery. Now remember, he has a history of armed robbery, and I think in one of them, a cop was shot. Then he volunteers to them that, you know, yeah, I was shot, and now I'm impotent. I'm completely impotent. He keeps talking about how impotent he is. And then he says he doesn't know who Sue is. (laughs) He doesn't know her. And his alibi is Marty, who he was out drinking with that night. Marty makes a comment about talking about what Justin said, you know, during the, during what he recounted during hypnosis. So he says to police that Justin was quiet enough so that he could have been in there. He basically says he could have been there without me knowing he was there. So it's like, okay, hang on. Did he slip up? Wait, what? (laughs) Yeah. So it's like, did he just slip up and say, literally, like, I was there and he might have been there and I didn't know he was there because he was there? Or was he just giving an example of he's so quiet that, you know, I don't hear him all the time, so it's possible he could have snuck in and seen something. I don't know if he's accidentally admitting something. Is that why those boys weren't killed? Because it was his stepson? Was he involved? Wouldn't he have known? I mean, like when he says... He could have been in there and I wouldn't have known, but he would know that his stepson slept over at that cabin, right? I assume. I don't know if he cared enough to pay attention to Mm. his comings and goings. Okay, yeah. The last thing Marty says is like, oh, and hey, by the way, I'm missing a hammer. It's got a blue grip on it. And the cops are like, okay, great, thanks, bye. And both men leave the state the day after the murders and they head to Nevada. And the case goes cold. For about three years. So a lot of sources say that this took place three years to the day, but I'm sad to say it wasn't. It was three years and 11 days after the murders on April 22nd, 1984. An alleged bottle collector, because some people are like, I don't think it was a bottle collector. It's all part of the conspiracy. He's out hunting for bottles when he steps on a portion of a human skull. At Camp 18 near Feather Falls in the neighboring county, which is a distance of about 100 miles or 160 kilometers from Ketty. He calls the police, who initially were sure that it was, they're like, oh yeah, that's going to be an old Native American skull. And so they bring it to the pathologist, and they're like, hey, we found an old, you know, skull, ancient skull. And the pathologist is like, "Uh uh-uh, this is not an old skull, and this is a child. Then the police get a very odd call from someone asking if the skull might be Tina's, and we're going to talk more on that later. Sadly, they're able to use dental records to identify Tina. Going back to search the scene where her skeletalized partial remains were found, they also were able to discover a blue jacket, a pair of Levi jeans that were missing a back pocket, a blanket, and an empty surgical tape dispenser. When Sheila gets the call that Tina had been found, she's like overjoyed and wanted to know how soon she could see her and where she was. 
and how she was, and that's when they explained that she would not be seeing her. But Sheila is like 17, 18 at that yeah. time? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And where were the kids living at that point? At that point... Not with their dead or... Yeah, no. Their father was out of the question. So okay. after the murders, initially, it's, it's this whole story just makes me so sad. Initially, they had moved in with their aunt, but she just couldn't handle the extra three kids, I think, financially. And so the kids were put into foster care. They were first together, but then they ended up being split up. And I think this is probably a good place to stop because there's so much to talk about in terms of more evidence and theories and alibis and just this case is so bizarre. So yeah, we're going to take another real hard look at Marty and Bo. They're the kind of, I think, favorites as suspects. There have also been some more recent updates, so we're going to discuss those. There's going to be a lot to talk about next week. Hopefully that uh, you and I will have a lot to chat about. And I'm looking forward to our listeners telling us their thoughts on this case. If you're on our Facebook group, uh, you know, when you go to look at the album, let us let us know what, what you think happened. I think part of the reason it's so hard is there's just this, there is a very strong, I want to say almost accepted as fact, belief that there was a cover-up by the sheriff at the time. And I think even the current sheriff seems to think that that's true, that there was a cover-up. And we're going to talk more about that next week because, again, it's so much information by anonymous people. So we'll get into it next week. But that's the first part of the Keddie Cabin murders. Just really, really sad. Can't believe I really didn't know. I knew the, the name, but that's all. I think that's all I knew about it. Yeah. Four people. Really sad. Do you have anything good? Yeah, I do. Well, you know it already. When was it? On Saturday, your package arrived and I did a little unboxing video for our Patreons. And it was, you are so good at sending gifts. Like, really, I was blown away. <laughs> it's just a bunch of candy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of candy, yeah, but I gave it to my nephew. Good. Uh, no, I love the pajama pants and the t-shirt. It's the Yay. best. It's the absolute best. Yay. Also, this the the... Um, makeup bag from Melissa and the body scrub from Riley. So good. So good. I'm so happy about it. Yeah, I am transferring. Well, I haven't used the makeup bag from Melissa yet. Mine says, well, you know what mine says in the other unboxing. Yeah. Elvis is dead. Sinatra is dead. And I am also not so good. One of my favorite quotes. I am pretty sure that I have not put makeup on in over a year. So I think everything I own now will give me pink eye. So I'm going to have to start fresh at some point when I'm leaving That's the house. Fun. Yeah. So then I'll fill up the makeup bag. Another something good is, because we talked about Love Boat, is all these old TV shows that I used to watch as a kid that just give me real big nostalgia feelings. I know. I used to watch like Love Boat and, as I said, Falcon Crest, Mike Hammer, Columbo. Philip gave me the complete Columbo collector's edition box for my birthday. I love it. Good my times. My mother loved Columbo. <laughs> it's so good. All the stars, there were so many stars in that show. There were. There really were. My dad, I'm sure I've mentioned this before, he didn't travel that often, but every so often he'd have to take a trip somewhere for work. And um, whenever my dad would be away, my sister and I would all sleep in my, with my mom and I was the middle spoon because we went by size and the dog would be in the bed with us and we would watch TV with mom. And so we would watch The Love Boat, Fantasy Island. Oh God, Magnum P.I. She used mm -hmm. to love. Yeah, I, I love all those. All those nostalgic shows. What's your something good? Well, today is St. Patrick's Day and it was my very Irish mother's favorite holiday. Next week, it's going to be a year since we lost her. And I'm, f I'm only just finally starting to, like, choose her. We're, my sister and I and my dad have been figuring out the headstone stuff. And it's going to be nice. We're going to do a clatter and shamrocks. It's going to be pretty. But my mom was so... She was just really funny and feisty and very, very proud of her Irish heritage. So if you're going to be drinking tonight... Please send a slancha my mom's way to Ginny. I would appreciate it. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I will have a drink on her. <laughs> Good. 
Um, and then a happy suggestion is to, again, watch – have I already mentioned Ted Lasso? I might have. Ted Lasso on Apple+. Plus. you got to watch it, everyone, please. Danny Rojas. I love him. It's good. Oh, and my father – got the second dose of his vaccine yesterday. Good. So that's great news. So, yeah. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in again next week when Annie is going to tell us the second and final part of the Caddy Cabin Murders. If you have just three seconds and you do like our content and our voices... <laughs> Um, please do us the favor and <laughs> maybe leave us a review or rating and or rating. That would help us out so much. Yeah. I think it's amazing how human you make us sound every month. <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's just... It's, it is. I know. Oddly enough, uh, a lot I, of I need, work. I'm due for an update. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Um, yeah. What else? Yes, Patreon. If you are interested in our Patreon, go to patreon.com and search for Fresh Hell Podcast. We pop right up or go to our webpage, freshhellpodcast.com, and there are all the links. Uh, we have three tiers in our Patreon. you find all the info there. And yes, we are setting up the second monthly game night for our murder tier patrons. It's fun. We're going to play yes. Cards Against Humanity again, I think. It was so much fun. That was good. Yes. I think Paul wants to play with us this time, too. Perfect. I said that would be okay. <laughs> um, what else was I going to tell? Oh, yeah, yeah. For our murder level, for our murder level patrons, some, some of the pins are starting to arrive that I mailed out. So just keep your eyes peeled. If you are a murder tier patron and you still haven't received your pin yet... Please contact us. Alex, uh, I yeah. will have yours mailed out this week. Yeah. If you just joined in the last couple weeks, I mailed a bunch out last week, but they're just starting to arrive. I think I've like slow boat mailed them with like extra stamps that I had in my drawer. <laughs> I found like a hack where you just write hand cancel, whatever. I'm going to get hate mail from my mail lady. No, I'm not. She's awesome. I love her. So it's fine. Okay. Tell your pets we said hi. We love them. We miss them. Stay safe, be well, and until next week, if you're going through hell, keep going. Tschüss. Bye. Bye.